Hello and welcome to Measurement Matters, the podcast that provides free tips and tricks on measuring the difference your activities have on people and the planet. My name's Matt Bevan and I'm your host. Joining me on this episode will be Ross Wyatt, founder and managing director of Think Impact, which is one of the leading for-purpose consultancies supporting organisations to better deliver impact. Ross is well known to many in the for-purpose sector, and I've been really excited to speak to him today because I feel he has a particular way of helping people see the importance of doing things differently. This is a conversation about how Ross got into outcomes measurement and why he's passionate about the work today. We discuss a number of points, and I feel this is best described as a masterclass in how to build more effective for-purpose organisations. So, without further ado, let's get started and see what we can learn and share together today. Ross, how are you? Good, Matt. How are you? Great. Welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome, and thanks for joining me today. I was actually quite excited about our chat. We probably haven't spoken for a while, but um, I always enjoy catching up and getting some insights and talking through some of this stuff with you because you... You're you're pretty um you're pretty influential in this space. Oh, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, we, we, we definitely as an organisation, we're trying to kind of disrupt um some of the some of the factors that I think are holding us back in creating social and environmental change. Um, and of course, the main part of that is this tendency to try and justify everything that we're currently doing. And uh, you know, our whole kind of evaluation lens is is around this this desire to justify. And you know, that's having the uh the perverse outcome of actually entrenching us in with some of our current problems. And you know, I think think impact as an organization, that's what we're trying to do is really get people focused on what what is actually happening as a result of all of these programs and all of this effort and all of this work to kind of address social challenges. That's awesome. And we'll get into we'll get into a bit of that disruption, because I think that is unique about what you do and actually challenge pe- challenging people to think differently. And I think that's really, really important part of this picture. But let's just step through and go go um, just go back just for people who are listening. Um, what is it that you do? You know, what is it? What's 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 your sort of role at the moment? And tell us a little bit quickly about Think Impact. Sure. Um, well, uh, about eight years ago, I founded an organisation called Think Impact. I'm, I'm currently the managing director. And, um, yeah, we have a, a great team, um, amazing team of uh, 13 or 14 people who are um, working to uh, to understand, help organisations understand the impact that they're having. But not only that, not only just to help them understand it, but help them actually shape and design organisations and strategies and cultures so that they create more impact. Um, and that's kind of where the exciting development is, is something we call impact-led design, how we actually help organisations design for impact rather than just justify what they're currently doing is a good thing. I'm going to love uh, when we get into this discussion because that that's a particular passion of mine as well. Um, just going back even further, like, how did you how did you get into this space oh. like what what was it that made you you know realize that this was important and got you started getting interesting 
interested in it. Well, don't don't share this too widely. You know, um, I don't want anyone to know about this. But I actually used to be um, head of marketing of a of a casino, uh, Crown Casino um, right. here in Melbourne. A wonderful organisation. Um, and, and really, you know, I started to be to get much more sensitive and conscious of what kind of you know when we start to to actually produce economic value at the expense of social value, you know, this this kind of transition and, and we were really diminishing, I think, a lot of social value, really creating a lot of problems in society. And uh, and I realised that was how I was making my living and so that, that kicked off the first of several uh, midlife crises and um, and I decided that uh, the, the not-for-profit sector looked like a good idea and uh, to kind of, it was a bit of a soul-cleansing uh, effort. So I started running a children's charity and um, it was really interesting through that work, you know, I realised how we were really successful and how attractive um, it was for funders and, and others to support, you know, work that, that, that actually has a, you know, a positive impact on, on, on children, especially sick children. And, um, and that, but that was sort of at the, at the expense, you know, I realised my counterparts who were working in, I don't know, bowel cancer prevention or, or family violence prevention or, um, some of these other less sexy kind of um, uh, causes were absolutely struggling to get funding and support because you know the way that we understood impact um, was on was what was an attractive fundraising raising cause. So we were really successful in fundraising, um, and I started to question: Well, how do you kind of understand whether we're making a difference for these children and families? You know, and to what degree are we? And and is it worth it? And is there better ways? And so I started looking around um, around the world and, and discovered a great organisation in England called the New Economics Foundation, which we all know and love, and uh, and discovered some things like social return on investment. And so, um, yeah, lo and behold, I thought, well, here's a great opportunity and I will, um, it's t- a way to spend the rest of my life. And so I bailed out of the uh, the corporate not-for-profit world and um, into uh, setting up my own business. And here we are some nearly a decade later and uh, it's it's been a fabulous journey and, it, you know, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was, it's been a real um, chance to actually do something that I think is is meaningful, but not only meaningful in terms of the individual work we do, meaningful in terms of tweaking the systems. And that's kind of the key here is, you know, driving systemic change, finding new ways of seeing value, finding new ways of accounting for progress. That's the, that's the real, the real secret here. And I mean, it's clear that this is still a passion, like it's still a super passion. And there must be many examples along the way that have made you realize the power and the value of this stuff. If I can just go back, I mean, one of the things I one of the things I like to do here as well is just get a little bit of definition of terms. Um, I think we talk about outcomes measurement, impact measurement. But what does all that mean to you? What how do you describe it? And what terms do you use when you're talking through this stuff? Well, there's probably two key terms in here that that you know, and there's several schools of thought about them. You know, and that is outcomes and impact. Um, you know, there's several. Schools of thought, you could probably summarize in two, in two schools that outcomes is the kind of the shorter term change that occurs for, could be for people, it could be for environments, could be for spaces, it could be for communities. Um, and, uh, impact is the longer term version. We tend to use a slightly different, um, perspective. And that is the outcome is the change that's experienced 
but the impact is actually the change that that part of that change that is attributable to the the program or the activity or the um, the service that we're currently looking at. So you kind of think about well, if you you know look at the classic sense of impact, you hit something and it moves. Um, you know that's that's kind of what impact is for us. It's about well, if you do something, what changes as a result of that of that activity that you're doing? And that for us is the impact. So is that is is that view around making sure we can attribute the change to particular activities? Well, that leads you into the next question: is this this quest for attribution? And you know what we're discovering now, of course, is the uh, that. Um, Things work in complex systems. If you look at, uh, I don't know, um, ex-offender programs, people coming out of prison, you know, we know the data is not great on on what happens in, in terms of their life trajectory. But there's a whole system of kind of influences that, that, that are at work here. And if any one of them falls down, the whole system can fall down. So, you know, this idea of percentage attribution that, that's 20% attributable to that and 30% attributable to that, if you've got multiple influences and any one of them doesn't work and the whole thing falls down, then you can all, you can kind of say that everything is 100%, there's 100% attribution to all of those things. So this is why we're starting to think much more in kind of, you know, systems thinking approaches. So understanding how a system works and how a, rather than any individual activity. And this is really, really important when you're starting to design more um, advanced theories of change and other and things like that where you're, you're actually trying to, it's not so linear as the old program. I always say old program. Well, program logic is still really important, but, but you know, the idea that you do this and this, then this, then this, it doesn't always work like that. And it's much more complex mm-hmm. and taking a systems approach we think is really important. I mean, it is interesting that idea that we, we sometimes we have these ways of talking about change, which are very linear and, you know, this leads to this leads to this. And then we all actually live in the real world where things go around in circles. They change. There's all this nuance and context. And, um, you know, we still want to try and create that lovely linear picture. Um, I guess that leads me to ask, you know, around methodologies yep. um, and ways of doing this, um, because it is complex and, and, and it's probably, you know, it is tricky <laughs> and, and there's a whole lot of things to go. But what, what sort of methodologies do you use and advocate? I mean, over the years, you must have tried, you know, pretty much everything that's available. What, what, what do you sort of tend to tend to talk to and use at the moment? Yeah, we, well, first thing is we try and be methodology agnostic um, and, and, and not, be, not be a slave to, you know, applying a particular methodology, although we use many of them. I look, the, the way I look at it is there's kind of three groups of methodologies. There are those that help you understand the shape of change. When we talk, when we're talking about outcomes or impact, we're talking about change. Um, so, you, you know, that's when you start to try and understand a system. Look, typically theories of change or as I often call them, stories of change. If it's already happening, then it's not a theory. It's, it's what we're observing. So it's a story of change. Um, so that really helps you understand the shape or the nature of the change that's resulting from a program. And I'll talk about some examples, some specific examples later. But um, the uh, the second level, if you like, is then the quantum of change. How do you understand the scale of that change? So there's a whole bunch of methodologies in, in there, you know, outcomes, frameworks and a whole bunch of measurement tools and 
um, to understand the, the 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 quantum or the scale of the change that's occurring, which is slightly you know, adding a different layer to the to the shape of it. The third area then is relating, the, looking at the relationship between the change and what it costs to actually get that change. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of like an effectiveness measure, and this is where the world of social return on investment and and uh, um, those kind of, and especially social return investment, I'll sort of focus mostly on that one because that's the, the one that is most prominently used to actually relate the cost of the cost of getting that change to the actual the quantum and the value of that change. So they're the kind of three levels to start looking at when we start thinking about uh, and when we're talking to clients about, uh, you know, you know, and often that starts with, oh, our funders want to, you know, understand, um, or, or our our minister wants us to have some evidence around this policy framework, or um, or as a corporate, they might be saying, "Well, we want to. We've got this these these dollars in our foundation. We want to kind of invest them to, to get the most change. How do we do that?" And often we would sort of really start to examine. Well, first of all, do you understand the shape of the change that you're seeking to create? And then we start looking at ways of measuring it and then we start looking at some of the more sophisticated models yeah it's good uh, so i guess um there's a there's a there's a conversation there about what what do you want you know what do you want from this yeah. um what, yeah. what are you trying to achieve um for this and then that leads you down a path of sort of helping people see the advantages and disadvantages of of tackling it in different ways um and potentially like for the example of so I hear for these social return on investment. Is that is that really when they're looking for the money side of things, or are there other? Could you use that methodology for different purposes? Yeah, definitely. It, it's look. It uses social return on investment uses money language, um, yeah. which is a bit of a two edged sword. Yeah. You know, we're working with an Aboriginal organisation at the moment, and um, you know they're looking at. Or they're doing an SROI around, you know, cultural connection, and, and you know, when, when, when you when you're starting to monetize what it means, you know, how, how valuable it is in in monetary terms to someone around connection to culture or or um, something that is, you know, as, as deeply felt and as deeply understood. You can get into an area where the the, the money kind of gets in the way of the conversation. Mm. Uh, you know, we've had a government department say, oh, we, you know, we want to we, we want to kind of estimate what's the value of these cultural gatherings. And, you know, you've got to be prepared to at some point push back and say there's no point. Like, they don't try. Same, same with another one, youth suicide. We, we, we've been involved in, in programs that are preventing youth suicide. And, you know, you start to look at, you know, an economic approach to to an averted suicide and, you know, you start to get into some some dangerous areas. That, that, that doesn't mean the methodology is not valid. It just means there are times when you've got to look at methodologies and go, to what degree should we be monetizing this? And that requires a fairly serious bit of professional judgment, which is where, you know, one of the things I would counsel people who are coming into this area is, you know, there are a lot of tools around, you know, be careful of kind of just applying it without a deeper understanding of the of the context and the systems in which you're applying it because it can have some really um, dangerous and, and perverse 
results uh, if you're not careful. I think that's great. It, it, it sort of feels like um, being able to hold tools quite lightly um, and actually, you know, be more intentional about how you use things and how you direct things to get the right results and not sort of be led by a particular methodology down a path that you know is not going to work um, and sticking to sort of, I, I guess it feels like you stick to a set of principles. I, I, I like the way you describe it, you know, holding lightly under a set of tools and you just remind me because I'm doing a bit of um, building work and, you know, it, it's a bit like a hammer and chisel, you know, like you've got the tools um, but you put them in different hands and you're going to get some pretty different results about how someone would use a, a hammer and a chisel. Um, and, um, and you, and so, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, I think, I think the, the social value principles, which, which sit at the core of everything we do and everything I know that you do as well. And, and, uh, um, you know, and the first of those is, is putting the stakeholder at the center. And this is something else that we're really, you know, um, absolutely mad about um and that is there is so much that is being done to various um parts of society um and it's people people seem to really sit back from you know the chance to kind of actually include people you know i remember working with an an energy company doing a homeless program and you know their their idea of the program was you know distributing blankets to people out in the street and you know you think oh, well, on the surface it makes sense you know um yeah, people don't, we don't want people cold but you know but where's the understanding of to what intent is to, to what degree is that entrenching um homelessness to what you know so suggest well why don't we get why don't we get some homeless people in here into your boardroom and let's talk to them let's 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 find out what it is that's you know working for them it's like oh we can never do that you know and it's that kind of um divisiveness i think you know and and the failure to include people in conversations that really gets in the way of so much that we're doing at the moment so much of the political rhetoric and the um the investment rhetoric is you know based on um, you know, giving back. Uh, we just did a, we just did a, finished a major study for the federal government on, on, on social cohesion. And, uh, it, you know, one of my favorite quotes that came out of that was someone said, said, you know, Oh, when I talk to people about, you know, they always say, Oh, I, you know, I love giving back. And I like to say to them, well, why, what have you taken? Uh, and, <laughs> you know, this, this, the role of kind of privilege. And privilege to give back to, you know, it's in, it's embedded in our kind of volunteering systems. It's embedded in our in our philanthropy systems, um, and it's always about this kind of one way, or not always, but but often about this sort of one way transition. But what we're not doing is actually empowering people to actually have an effective voice in the conversations about what will drive change in terms of closing the gap. In term, in terms of addressing um, family violence, in terms of gender equity, you know, these are these are issues that you've got to hear the voices from all sides. And so, when you're doing these kind of evaluations and analyses, that's the first principle: is make sure you, you know, the, the stakeholders at the centre, and, and that you're understanding what's changing from their perspective, not from the perspective of the organisation. This this must stuff. be. Well, I think that's a really, really great point that you're making because presumably you must go into some organisations and um, that's a bit of a learning. Um, you know, they might think, oh, well, you know, I want to do outcomes measurement. 
And depending on how people see or I want to understand the impact we're making, they might be thinking, oh, well, this is something we're going to do that's going to be separate to how we do business. And it's going to tell us something. Whereas what you're actually talking to is you're actually you're actually talking about a way of changing the way we do business, a way of changing the voices and the power in the room um, to fundamentally shift, you know, the, the way the things that we respond to in in, in creating impact. Yeah. And I suppose what I'm wondering is there must be some organizations where you go where they get that idea. You know, they're on a journey to shift power and they're saying, look, no longer we're the expert in the room. And if you work with them, presumably, I'm just wondering whether it's easier to do outcomes measurement with those sort of groups or ones oh. where they still think they're the expert. What, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, look, absolutely. There are many, many organisations that are really, um, you know, leading and travelling along this path now Now to actually understand, you know, how to do things with people and um, and rather than, than, than to them. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that really kind of screams at us, and once you kind of start to look at things in this way, it, it can challenge your, your, your kind of perspective. And, and this is, you know, this is something that I talk about a bit about, you know, the, the not-for-profit sector, you know, and because it's not-for-profit, therefore it is somehow somehow fundamentally good and the for-profit sector is somehow fundamentally evil. Um, yes, there are there are elements of truth in, in, in that, of course, but... But the idea that, you know, first of all, you've got an organisation that describes itself by, by what it isn't. It's not for profit, or even sometimes you do it another way. It's, it's in, in a non-government organisation. We're an NGO, we're not for profit, so well, what are you? And, of course, we used to like to use the language of for-purpose organisations. And this is really important because if you're a not for profit, the, the tendency is to measure your success by, um, by, by growth, by, you know, by influence, by expanding your impact, by um, fundraising growth by, you know, you know, how you're doing as an organisation. What that depends on is that the misery that you're trying to solve actually continues to increase. So here's the kind of, here's the rub that, that, that you know, to be a successful organisation, you've got to depend on, on, on the, you know, we all, we all talk about mission statements that, you know, we're ending child poverty by blah, 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 or we're connecting um, people with, you know, positive futures for, da, da, da. Um, but very few have an actual end game. So this is why, you know, organisations need to be able to measure, especially in, in that sector, in the for-purpose sector, they need to be able to measure their, their, their progress on the basis of uh, the degree to which they're delivering on, on a genuine purpose, the, the degree to which they're delivering impact rather than the degree to which they're growing as an organisation because, you know, um, this is why we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, you know 15% of, the, of Australia's workforce and 3% of our GDP goes in, into the for-purpose sector. Um, and we're not seeing really most of the indicators are still moving in the wrong direction. So you've got to kind of ask some fundamental questions here about, well, how do we be more effective? And, of course, the two answers are we start to account for our progress or success in different ways. And we start to operate more collaboratively as a system of support rather than, you know, you look at it from this way, put, put stakeholders at the, at the start. You, you talk to any stakeholder that's, that's um, facing some kind of um, vulnerability or disadvantage and, and, you know, they will tell a story inevitably of being bounced from service provider, service provider, service provider, and service provider. There is no kind of connected system from, from their perspective. 
So that's the things that we've got to kind of start to challenge. And that will come by starting to measure progress in different ways. This is why the measurement, this is why measurement matters. Measurement does matter. The podcast name is important to plug at this point <laughs> in the conversation. Um, yeah, like I really, I mean, I like that. It's, it must be so challenging though to go to organizations. And this is where this disruption piece comes in. I mean, you know, where we, we, we don't want to offend people, but we arrive at the door and they're presented with a challenge. We're not changing the dial. Um, we want to be more impactful. Um, and we've got these wonderful statements around we want to end child poverty or we want to end homelessness. Um, and there's this there's this thing that needs raising, which you you I mean, you're obviously the person that is able to say these things of saying, well, there's a conflict here. <laughs> We exist because we support this thing. Yeah. Um, we actually have to have that difficult conversation about, you know, what does success look like? I think that that phrase you use, the end game, like what is success? Is success that we don't have a business here? Yeah. And that's Absolutely. pretty tricky because, you know, that that's, must be very unsettling for a board, <laughs> an executive stream who are trying to, you know, create this this enduring business model you know, which which has sustainability, which has ongoing value. And then suddenly there's this idea that this, you know, this might not carry on forever. There might be a different way of looking at it. Yeah. That must be um, such and, a tough and, conversation. It, it is. And, and, and boards are sometimes the hardest group to have. You know, often the executive gets it, but the boards don't. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a whole question about not-for-profit governance and, and in there as well. But... Um, yeah, the uh, yeah the, the end game end game is not just you know shut, shutting up shop. There's about fifteen end games that we work with about you know how you kind of what is the next level of your organisation and it might be you know it might be broader sharing of the model that, that you're doing like replication replication of the model might be the end game. It might be government adoption of different policies. It might be there's a whole lot of things that people can you know you can actually think of that aren't just kind of this little incremental 5 or 10% growth a year kind of mentality that, that will just keep doing the same thing ad infinitum. Uh, so, and, and in-game is not always as scary as that. It's not, it's not always, you know, oh, we're going to shut up shop. And it's, it's, there's a whole lot of options in there. But, um, yeah, look, you raised the, the question about, you know, um, how you, how you measure success. And I, you know, I think it's probably useful to think of some specific examples of, 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 of that. And, you know, um, just to some that, that come to mind is, you know, um, recently been working for, you know, one of the uh, state governments and, and, uh, you know, where they're, they're deciding that leadership in government, you know, departmental leadership and is, is a real challenge. And so they're running all these leadership development activities and uh you, you know and so when we get called in to ask well how do we actually know that we're actually changing leadership capability you know um this is this is really important and if we do who benefits is it the leaders is it their teams is it the way the government works as a whole is it the society that's actually the government is there to serve you know and how can you detect those or can you detect those changes right through um, and we've been able to 
to do that um, through using some of these methods, through using a sophisticated theory of change that actually starts to understand, um, you know, and by actually asking all of the stakeholders and the people around these these people that are going through leadership development programs, what's changing for them? Um, are they are they better able as departments to to um, uh, challenge the status quo? Are they better able to um, deliver on their mission? Uh, do they feel more confident in in their ability to kind of get the best out of their teams? You know, there's a whole lot of specific things that you can start to develop indicators for. Um, you know, another one is in uh, oh, one of our favourites, I suppose, is in is in crisis housing. You know, in, in up in North Queensland, we're working for an organisation or worked for an organisation that uh, provides crisis housing predominantly for um, uh, single mums and probably single Aboriginal mums, and and uh, they really started to understand that you know they were seeing people would come in for crisis housing for three or four months and they would then come back and eventually we're starting to see their children coming coming in now you know 15 20 30 years years down the track and um this is um and, and what they realize is is that actually there was there was levels of financial capability that were um, needing to be built there. And so all of a sudden the program didn't become, it adapted from becoming one about crisis housing to one about building financial capability and, you know, it's trying to address some of the long-term changes. By doing that and actually hearing the voices of the people who are, um, who often express to us, by the way, that they felt like, well, no one's ever really cared about what our view was. It's so good that actually someone's listening and actually recording and, and documenting our experience and our views in uh, in uh, in this, and that's changed the way that uh, the Queensland government policy operates around this area. So, they're the kind of systemic kind of tweaks that I think are really exciting when you start to see, you know, um, that becoming the norm rather than you know older models of crisis housing for three months and throw thrown back out in the street and hope you land softly. It's very it's very refreshing hearing you talk like this I think one of the things that was going through my mind is how you don't talk about it you know this um it it feels like you're talking about how do we make better for purpose organizations and how do we improve the work we do to make society better it never feels like this academic exercise where there's some set formula that people have got to learn and you've got to call in this um you know all-knowing being who can run something which is like a su- supercomputer which no one else can understand it feels very accessible and it feels like such a natural conversation we should all be challenging ourselves with um but the other thing i think i was reflecting is it doesn't feel like it's reserved for a particular part of an organization i mean you're talking about strategy you're talking about you know, you're talking about the whole gambit of an organisation, even how they communicate, how they attract funding, everything. But I suppose what I was thinking is it's interesting when you actually look at organisations and you look at how they structure and how they fund, if they do internally, this sort of impact measurement piece or these professionals that have this lens, um, it, it tends to start off quite small. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder... You know, whether you whether you do go into organizations who even have a function and you sort of say, look, that works pretty good. Um, You know, this should be part of your conversation in all these different forums. Like, how do you how do you see that working? Yeah. Yeah. It it often sits in the kind of a monitoring and evaluation kind of 
area and and uh, or a sustainability area in a corporate um and it, it often sits to one sort of side we're sort of you know where the where the the sciencey types that are kind of looking at understanding um uh the degree to which we're making a change and i think what we're you know we do have a kind of a pretty um strong view around um sector reform and you know this is in all sectors and you know sitting behind all of this and and also just and and think about academic academia for a second too um you know working up the the evidence hierarchy is really important you know there's no question that being absolutely certain about something especially when you look at things like you know um vaccination (laughs) at the moment you you, you know you know know, there's absolute role for um you know being really certain that uh, people won't get hurt as you do some kind of medical thing or, or, or whatever. Um, but there is also um, in academia, there's, there's, and there's this desire to push up that, um, uh, in, up that evidence hierarchy to, you know, randomised control trials and to um, systematic studies and um, meta-analyses and, and, and these kind of things, and, that, and they're important. But increasingly what we're finding is the academic organisations are coming to, to us and, and organisations like us to go, actually, we're being asked now to actually evidence so what's, go- what's, what's going to be the impact of us doing this piece of research, um, especially when you're in some of the... Uh, um, more what might be seen as esoteric areas you know the role of creativity in education um this is this is a current one that that we're you know really understanding well if we do some really interesting research around that um and we want to be absolutely certain how can we be how can we kind of walk this um tight line between being absolutely certain but also generally right and you know there's some great Sort of quotes and thinking about the, the the risk of being you know um, what they call it uh, uh, I, I'd rather be generally right than precisely wrong yeah. um, and you know this is this is where I think there is a role for this kind of analysis and this kind of work um, it doesn't mean it's not rigorous it just means that sometimes you've got to use professional judgment sometimes you've got to accept the voice of stakeholders um, for what it is. Sometimes you've got to interpret the voice of stakeholders. Um, sometimes you've got to um, uh, um, be relatively sure that something's working in a certain way and then adapt and try and evolve and do different things. Otherwise, we just get stuck. And decades in, 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 a, in an academic sense is often, you know, a decade is can, can be pretty quick. You know, we can advance our knowledge a, a tiny incremental bit. But a decade in climate change or family violence or, you know, some of these areas, we need to be moving much, much quicker to actually be trying, testing, learning, evolving, changing the system and connecting different knowledge and sharing different knowledge rather than just kind of doing isolated activities over here and over here and over here. Um, sorry, you asked another question there, Matt. I, I, I no, no, I no, no, that's great. And I, I, but I think that point about that idea about, that wonderful quote you brought in about being sort of vaguely right or precisely wrong. My interpretation of that um, is that, you know, if you don't have any of this information coming through, however messy and contextual and nuanced it is, um, you don't know. And you're going off a very, you know, a sort of, it's a little bit like diversity, you know, you haven't got the right voices in the room. So you're, you're stuck, you're stuck, deciding what's happening 
Um, and you could be completely wrong because you don't have the right information. And it sounds like that actually what you're talking about is getting the right people in the room. So whatever the quality of that in- information is, you've got a better chance of being right <laughs> because you've got the right source of information. And it sounds like that in a way is is perhaps a starting point for a conversation with organizations to to let them sort of think about whether they're whether they're on the right path. Like, how are you sitting in terms of that? In terms of that, look, I'll give you a, a, a real example um, that, I, that I think kind of illustrates that point. This relates to a, um, a housing, a social community housing organisation, and um, we were working with a, um, a group of residents um, in uh, in one of their properties, and um, really trying to understand. You know, they were looking to understand the impact of. So they had a theory of change, you know, and the theory of change was, well, okay, we provide people with safe, secure and affordable housing. They, you know, the health will improve, um, children's education outcomes will improve, um, you know, and it's all about, you know, the roof over the head and the, and the certainty of housing. And, um, and we spoke to these, uh, to predominantly women, um, and predominantly from mental health backgrounds, um, or as when we're bouncing, when we're talking about language, you know, one of them said, no, no, we prefer to be described as mentally hilarious. Which I thought was, thought was I love that. It was kind of a real icebreaker to kind of, you know, start to in- inject some of that that language. Anyway, um, the um, and we were exploring with them about what's changed, and they said, no, 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 no you kind of got it all wrong. You, you know, this is the first time in our life that they've got this thing called a co-op, and you know, we're part of the co-op, so we get to make decisions about, I don't know, what colour we're going to paint the common area, you know, what food we're going to make sure we've got in, in the pantry, What who, who, who comes into this development, what maintenance gets prioritised. You know, this is, this is the first, you've got to understand, this is the first time in our life that we've been asked for uh, about that rather than just being told by service providers, you know, we've got to go here and do that and apply for that and do that and do that. And do that. Um, but now we're like, we're, 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 we're empowered. And so it's not the house, it's not the building it's it's the co-op. It's the way that we run this this building. That's what's driving the change. That's where the value is. And it was kind of it was it was it was a great unlocker because all of a sudden you know and now this organisation can 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 and is and has done um, replicated that co-op method of and it saved them money because they've now got the residents much more involved in kind of in, in running running it as a co-op rather than having you know tradesmen and others coming in and tradespeople coming in and doing all this stuff, um, you know, they're, they're really intimately involved and they get more value. The impact is greater and it's saved the organisation costs. I mean, they're, they're the kind of, they're the magic solutions that you're always, like, looking for um, because you're focusing not on, you know, oh, how do we save costs on delivering services we're, say, we're focusing on what is the impact. The, the other classic example, which um, you, you probably heard um, before, but, you know, it's Meals on Wheels. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in several Meals on Wheels organisations, they've worked out they can get much more much more nutritious meals, higher-quality meals by, by actually working with a high-quality caterer and freezing up seven meals at a time and delivering them on a Sunday afternoon and, and uh, the person gets much more, um, much better food for, for the week. 
of course, it totally ignores what the real value is, you know, the social contact, the daily check-in, the, you know, that was what was valuable. And so you've got to understand when you're delivering and designing a service what you design it around the impact, not around the activity. And this is, this is just, you know, if there's one thing that I would want your listeners to kind of take away is do not start with what you are doing and try and demonstrate that that's effective. Start with what is the change that you're trying to create and ask yourself that fundamental question, is this the only way that we could be creating that change? You know, that's the kind of key. And um, then you can start to design your programs and activities around impact and you build in um and there's this fairly simple process that we can take organisations through. But you build in your monitor, evaluation, learning and design um, systems in, in that design process. So, you know, it's a bit like turning the whole thing backwards. Well, it does, it does turn the whole thing backwards. I mean, you know, as an example, you might look at um, child protection early intervention space um, yep. and the fact that we're really keen to make sure that, people are safe and they're not experiencing certain negative outcomes and that is absolutely super important however there's a challenge there in terms of if we focus on just not experience any negative outcomes we may be missing this idea of having positive experiences and actually over time we've got to start saying well what is it where we've got to really ask that question about what we're trying to achieve um, is it just no negative experiences or is it a lot of positive? And what is the change we're looking for? And it starts opening up Pandora's box, really, um, about how everything we do. I think it's it, it must be that's quite challenging for organisations because we're fixed with we do this because it's a good reason. And we did it because we did it last year. And we've gone through this conversation five years ago and we decided we'll carry on. Do we have to have it again? <laughs> We have to challenge ourselves. I thought we decided this is how we're going to do it. That's that's tough. Yeah. No one likes we, 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 we often use some tools, and and you know one of them one of them is is we ask people to put on their impact coloured glasses. Um, it, it's it's kind of a you know a mental metaphor for going. Well, look at the organisation. Look at the whole system through the, the point of view of, of impact. And, and and if you keep your eye open to the systems, I'll give you you, you use the example then of of. of family services and and uh you know here's a great great connection you know a systems view of that there is also sitting out there a thing called the food relief system which you're obviously aware of you know that uh, it could be wasted food is being distributed and and there's um now when you start to think well oh there's people hungry and let's sort of just solve problems of you know related to hunger and and that and so we'll get food out to people and and uh Yep, that's all super valuable, no question about it. And uh, who, who wants hungry people? No one. Um, yet if you start to look at then, okay, we've well, also got a family services um, group over here who are seeking to actually engage with families um, and have conversations that will be really challenging to a family about um, child wellbeing and, and a whole bunch of other things. You can kind of imagine, you put yourself in that system. So imagine, and this is actually what, what, what's actually been able to happen through through some of this kind of more um, systems approach thinking, is you start to say, well, actually, rather than food relief, let's start to think about community food solutions. How would it be if we actually empowered the, I don't know, the family services people to actually take food to, you know, to, to go 
to go to knock on these houses, doors, houses, knock on the doors of these houses with with with, with food and 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 start a conversation around food rather than flashing badges and you know having police in the background and calling you know dragging kids away and you know some of the terrible stuff that we, we that we heard and we do know happens. Um, that we actually start a conversation, you know, so you actually start to integrate a food, a food release system and, and a family system. And then you start to get some much more evolved ways and you go, oh, we don't have an organisation to do that. Well, now you're starting to think about, well, how would you design an organisation that does that? They're the kind of, um, you know, they're the kind of challenges that I think that can be addressed by thinking about impact and thinking about systems rather than thinking about just evaluating what outcomes we're producing as a result of our current activities. I think what you're describing is, is for the people that are listening is, you know, when you reach out to Ross and think impact, you know, um, if you are wanting to challenge the way things are done, if you're looking at the innovation space, the doing things differently, being more impactful, um, that's kind of your, that's one of the things that you're, you sound like is your, one of your main focuses. Oh, look, look, absolutely. It's, it's certainly one of the things that we, we aspire to do. It's not the only thing we do. We, we, we do straight evaluations and we do, um, um, you know, impact measurement. You know, it's certainly where we started. And, you know, more and more we're doing work in the kind of corporate and government and academic spaces as well, um, you know. But what we're trying to do is sort of join the dots. What we realise is, you know, and we've just been through our own strategy kind of, process as well and you know we, we realize that we have a real chance to influence some of the systems here you get as a consultant you get very privileged access to organizations um, you get deep inside them you understand what makes works you can you get to see them what's and all as you said earlier it's sometimes challenging to kind of point out those um, you know um, imperfections in their systems and uh, and then you um, but you also get to then come out of that and then work in other systems. And all of a sudden what happens is over, over the decades that you do this, you start to sort of see the ridiculousness in some of the ways that we do some of the things that, that, that we're doing, some of the, the, the narrow, you know, the short-sightedness, the, um, you know, the, the work we're doing in, in, in New South Wales um, with um, across six or seven uh, Aboriginal assemblies, you know, and it's amazing supporting negotiations between government and Aboriginal organisations. And, you know, you just kind of see how difficult it is for, for government representatives to actually see things from a community perspective. They're just... It's just the system, you know. I don't. The people are great, you know. I don't, I don't hold against the people, but but the, the the way that governments work and 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 the way that the systems work really prevents this ability to actually see things from a different perspective. And I think that's kind of one of the things that we we try really hard to bring. Is it, you know, and, and I will give you a, a real example there. Um, I'll change a few things a little bit so it's not talking out of school, but but. You know, imagine a Department of, of, of Health is, is talking to an Aboriginal organisation who have been having terrible experiences in their health system in, in, in their mm. community and uh, for, for, for centuries, you know, and th- this is, um, you know, and they, they the government departments come up, come up with ways of measuring, you know, they, they want to make a change, they want to make it better. And so they, they go, oh, number of, number of people, number of Aboriginal people employed in the health system will kind of, um, is one of our is one of our indicators, and 
So they come in and, as I say, names and numbers change, but, but you know, they come in and say, oh, we've just incre- increased the, the number of Aboriginal people employed in, in, um, in our system from 6% to 12%. So, you know, fantastic news, you know, we're moving in the right direction and, and the community representatives are sitting there going, what are you talking about? No, nothing's, nothing's changed from our perspective. And the government people will say, well, well, well yeah, what's your evidence? How do you know that what, what would... I said, well, our stories would change. Our experiences would change. And the government people said, well, but yeah, but stories aren't evidence. We kind of let it hang there for a bit until kind of the dawning came on everyone. And so stories is the only evidence. Yes. The experience and the stories is the only evidence that things are changing. You cannot cannot measure um, uh, um, cultural sensitivity from, a, from an external perspective, only the people who are experiencing it can, can actually measure it and determine it and understand it. It's got to be placed completely in their hands. And it was, a, it was a fascinating conversation. There's a whole series of these conversations that have gone on that are starting to kind of unlock um, what it actually looks like to transition, you know, the thing, transitioning power and decision-making power. It's like it, it's not scary. It's actually really positive. And um, yet it's so hard for, for governments because of their... Um, the culture and the systems and the way that they work to actually allow that to happen. Yes. Uh, look, I think that, um, I think that point about the shifting power being, being a really, really important, um, you know, component of this, it is pretty scary. It's scary for governments. It's pretty scary for organizations as well. I think there's this fear that we lose control. Um, we're spending a lot, a lot of time trying to, make sure think we're in control of everything. And then yeah. suddenly when you shift power, there's this fear that the whole thing will break. Um, and it, and that must be challenging. I suppose you, you've seen it happen quite a lot of times and there must, I mean, there must be a message in that. Like, does it all, do you always lose control or is? No, well, look, I t- look, take the rise in sort of co-ops and mutuals as, as a good example. And, you know, I gave an example before about of actually transitioning decision-making power, um, in, in that housing context, actually added added value to the organisation. Um, yeah, it's difficult to to govern, and and uh, you know it's complex to deal with a whole lot of different views. And and uh, but you can actually you know you can embrace that. You you can you can you know embrace that kind of uncertainty as a newer way of actually running organisations and a newer way of, of running systems. We will never govern ourselves out of social disadvantage. It just, you can't, it's not the way things work. The whole reason we have inequity and disadvantage is because of our current approach to industry and business and, and governments. And, you know, um, because because we've got this kind of fundamental idea that, that you know, to be an effective organisation, you know, you've got to deliver value to your shareholders and, you know, and there's so much written, you know, about you know, expanding the idea from shareholders to stakeholders and, and all that sort of stuff. And and one of the beautiful things that I think is arising is a whole revolution in the accounting system. And we've done work with CPA even, you know, that they're starting to think about, well, how do you measure, you know, we, 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 we're for, for, uh, since the 1400s or something, we've had this really sophisticated financial accounting kind of system to measure our progress. Yet what we don't do is actually account for the capital that, that we're destroying. So we're only just starting to do that now. So now we're starting to say, oh, well, if an organisation is, um, you know, 
burning coal and emitting stuff into someone's picking up the cost of that now. We never saw it, you know, in the early days, obviously. Um, we thought it was just an ending thing, but now other organisations and humans are picking up the health costs, the um, productivity costs, the agricultural costs, the you know all of the things that the the, the eco ecological costs, you know. So, so we're actually creating financial capital over here, but destroying um, natural capital over here. So what organise what the accounting movement is starting to do, you know, and just look at the stuff on six capitals, and um, you know, I, I think this is this is the key here is to start to understand you've got to be able. Organisations have to go way beyond triple bottom line and start measuring a whole bunch of multiple capitals. Understanding what we do to relationships, understanding what we do to people's health and well-being, understanding what we do to um, the natural environment. Um, you know, we can't just measure our progress by um, by financial measures and, um, you know, perhaps as a nice little sort of wrap-up to this if, is, to, is to start to think about um, the economist who developed, and I've just forgotten his name at the moment, is it Stiglitz? Um, um, might be wrong. Um, but, anyway, the economist who developed this idea of gross national product, um, you know, he he was asked by the US government, you know, in the Depression era to say, well, how, how do we kind of get a handle on this economy going out of, out of whack and so he developed this idea of you know um gross national product and measuring the way that that you know that we can kind of provide a really blunt measure for how the organization's going and he says and it's on page 17 he says um uh look whatever you do don't use this to to measure social progress because it doesn't it doesn't account for um you know the quality of people's work it doesn't account for um, you know, unpaid work and unpaid labour, or I think he described it as um, was housewives' effort or something. Um, you know, and uh, but but what we now understand is as as you know the unpaid contributions to the economy it doesn't count for any of those things. It doesn't count for for people's well being. And and uh, um, yet, what do we do? We've done nothing else but measure our progress. And what, what's on the news every day is how good's GDP going and. You know, we don't have anywhere near the sophisticated measuring systems to understand how we're doing as as communities. And if there is one wish that I have, um, you know, one legacy that I hope to um, to leave is that um, my children and my and my grandchildren now, um, you know, get to see, um, you know, measures of social progress that are kind of credible and understood and 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 valued and balanced off, um, because. You know, quite frankly, when when I was born, there were well, there was three billion people in the world. When I die, there'll be about nine billion. The theoretical limit's about ten billion. So my life has gone from one third full to full. You know, so the systems that will govern our next generations will be fundamentally they have to be fundamentally different to the economic systems that we've used to actually um, measure our progress up until two thousand and twenty one. Um, in Otherwise, the future doesn't look very bright. That's right. Look, Ross, I think it's fantastic. I, I I do feel like I could talk all day, and I'm I'm sure there are people listening to this that want to want to know more. They want to hear more from you. Where where would people connect with you? Sure. Um, well, obviously, our website thinkimpact.com.au. Um, come on there and uh, and look us up. Um, but uh, yeah, and also and it raises a whole lot of questions. And I know you know the next level is well, how do you do this stuff? You know, and I know yeah. there's a lot of people that really want to know in detail how you do this stuff. And you know, I'm happy to have more conversations about that. Um, and uh, and also, yeah, feel free to have a chat and have a coffee. 
virtual coffee as it is at the moment. But it uh, is that's the way of thinking. I mean, I think the other thing I like to do just at the end is just a shout out for people. There's, there'll be a few people that are listening. This is really resonating with them. They're saying, I like, I like this view of the world. I want to be involved. I want to drive that change. Um, maybe they're not in that position at the moment. They're not in, they haven't got the privilege of sort of do, what's your shout out to them? Like, how do they get started? And what do they, what do they do if they want to get, be part of this sort of journey? Yeah. Um, it hasn't been easy. You know, um, you know, there are lots of people, I know there are a lot of people here. We, we, our, our emails and websites get kind of hit pretty regularly. People saying, I really care about this stuff. Look, I, I think, I think there's a set of values that you've got to bring to this kind of work, um, you know, and those values are about concern for humanity and the environment. And, um, you know, so I, I know there's billions of people out there that actually care about this stuff. The next thing is kind of some some technical rigour. Um, you know, you, we need to be able to convert, you know, we often act as, as sort of translators between, um, you know, put really bluntly, someone wants to do, well, we take, we take we take people's problems and squeeze them into spreadsheets it's not quite that blunt but but you know the ability to both take a technical view to um to social issues um and i think the other thing that we're really looking forward is the ability to kind of um you know from our point of view the ability to kind of work across multiple perspectives and have that um have that ability to um see things a little differently but actually be really clear in the way that then you communicate that back with, you know, we, we work on a client basis. So for us in the, in the consulting field, it's uh, you need that balance of consulting skills, technical skills and values to um, to succeed in this area. Um, always happy to talk to people. Um, feel free. We're actually looking looking at the moment. Um, so um, so people can, people can reach out. But uh, uh, it's... It's a different way. It's a different way of working, a different way of thinking. And, um, you know, I don't know what, to be honest, I don't know what the future workforce in this area looks for, look, look, looks like. You know, when I was going through university, I never imagined I would be a social impact pr- practitioner. They didn't even, that didn't even exist, um, then. Yeah. And so I do love the idea that we've been able to create, um, you know, a whole field of practice that is trying to shift and drive a system to a better future for our kids and our grandchildren and their children and their children. Yeah, I love it. No, look, again, I really, really appreciate time with you today. Um, I do think, uh, you, you know, you are one of the stars in this area and I really appreciate what you're doing and, you know, That's your willingness you, to share and, uh, yeah, help others um, join this, join this um, passionate, yeah, drive. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. I look. I think it's one of the most important conversations in the world right now, and, and and it's not a fringe thing. It's this. This is this is what's got to be mainstream. Thanks for your time, Matt. All right, Ross. We'll speak to you soon. Speak to you very soon. Okay. All the best. Take care. Bye. Well, how did that land for you? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. There's so much good stuff in there. It just shows the value of time with the right people. I highly recommend you connect with Ross if you need any support around creating impact and outcomes measurement. And I've put in his contact details in the show notes. As always, if you've got any feedback, then please get in touch. And if you want to speak on a future episode, then give me a call. For all those out there having conversations about well-being and giving measurement a go, Keep up the good work. 
because measurement matters.